Entrepreneurs often have similar characteristics. Energy, passion, vision. But why do some soar to success while others struggle to climb? Less than 2% of women-owned businesses in North America ever achieve a million dollars a year in annual revenue. Why is that? And how do we dramatically increase that number? Welcome to Breakthrough with your host, Sarah Roach-Lewis. Sarah offers conversations with the ambitious women entrepreneurs in that 2% to help you break through. Now, here is Sarah Roach-Lewis. Well, hello, ambitious one. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Breakthrough. Perhaps you have a bold ambition or an emerging desire to hit the million-dollar mark and beyond in your business. You may be well on your way or just starting out. Regardless, this is the show for you. I want to welcome Sherry Deutschman to the show today. Sherry is the CEO and founder of Brain Trust, which is a peer-to-peer membership organization for women business owners. And she was the CEO of LetterLogic, a company she founded and grew to $40 million in annual revenues with more than 50 employees before selling it in 2016. In addition to winning a host of entrepreneurship awards in her career, she was named a White House Champion of Change by President Obama in 2016. Sherry's book, Lunch with Lucy, Transformational Leadership Through Empathy, will be released in March of 2020. Welcome to Breakthrough, Sherry. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sarah. Well, I'm so excited that you're here with us today. And I just want to jump right in. Your business, Letter Logic. Um, was founded to send out statements um, on behalf of hospitals. Um, and so tell me a little bit about how you started Letter Logic. Well, I was working for a company in the same space. I was VP of Sales, um, and we processed patient statements for hospitals. The hospitals from all across the United States sent their data to us electronically, and then we processed that data and put it on paper, and big machines printed, folded, and stuffed the bills, and then we mailed it for them. So we printed and mailed bills. And uh, our company just had a lot of problems, uh, tons of issues with quality, um, all of which occurred to me stemmed from simple human error. And my observation was that the errors were because the employees didn't care. And the reason they didn't care is because nobody cared about them. And so I went to my boss with this epiphany. You know, like, hey, boss, I've got the solution to all of these screw-ups we're having. And um, he, I, I have only a high school education, and uh, he has had an MBA from Vanderbilt. And uh, he patted my hand and told me I didn't know anything about business. Um, he said, just go sell another account. So I did, mm-hmm. except... This time, I didn't sell it for his business. I sold it for my business. Yeah, I set up shop uh, in my basement competing with him. Amazing. So, yeah, you, you, that was certainly a, a lesson for him. Um, and so when you started Letter Logic, you experienced some challenges that you didn't really expect around financing. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, um, the reason I had the courage to start the business was a a local businessman approached me when I was still working for this company and said, I've been observing you and watching your company, and I think you should leave them and start your own business, and I'll finance it for you. And so his um, term sheet 
and at the time I didn't even know what a term sheet was, but the right. term sheet you know, said that he would finance this company. He would allow me to own up to 5% um, wow. after a while. I could be vested in 5% ownership and that I could start out with $35,000 a year salary. Well, I had gone from being um, uh, so poor that I couldn't afford electricity and daycare, so I lived without electricity, to making uh, six figures. And here was this man offering me the grand opportunity to have a $35,000 a year salary. So that was easy to say no to. Uh, and, uh, but it gave me the courage because he has kind of a Midas touch and he was a very successful businessman. And I thought, well, if he believes in me, maybe I should believe in me. And so when I walked out of the of my former em- employer's office that day, I went to the bank and, and uh, asked for $350,000. And uh, they told me no pretty quickly. And then I went to several other business entities in town, um, mostly customers and uh, people who knew me in that world, and asked for the money. And all of them said yes. Wow. So my, my experience wasn't like what a lot of other women experience. And I believe it was because they knew that I knew the industry and um, I had a good reputation in the industry and they believed in me. Uh, however, none of them um, would allow me to run the company the way I wanted to run a company. And I would not have the control in any of those scenarios to run it the way I wanted. So um, I said no to all of them. Had a week-long yard sale. Uh, sold all my belongings and cashed in my 401k and uh, went down to Goodwill and bought uh, two of those little short filing cabinets um, and got an old door and pulled it over those filing cabinets and that became my desk and I got a whiteboard and a phone and started competing with him then. Wow. I think I grew the company to about... um, about two and a half million and ran out of money and then brought in some other money. Right. Okay. So how does someone who goes from, as you say, not necessarily having enough confidence to do it on your own until someone else, until you see yourself through someone else's eyes to then be able to say no to all of these offers when it wasn't what you wanted? Because I did not want to find myself in the same situation where I was before, in a place where I had no voice, no power, no ability to make change. So I didn't want to go back to that. By doing it your own way, you experienced a ton of success. One of the things that I read is that you felt that you had sort of three pillars pillars to your business, empathy, transparency, and profit sharing. Can you talk to me a little bit about each one of those and how you feel they contributed to this incredible success that you had? Yeah, I think at the core of all of it was empathy, and I think it's an often overlooked uh, trait for good entrepreneurs that you care deeply about your employees and that you engender in them the the, the passion to care about each other. And so I, I started out with that empathetic leadership in mind and um, created an environment where I would tell customers you don't come first, my employees come first. But because they are so well cared for, when they're at work, they're gonna be totally focused on taking great care of you. And so um, I think there were three pillars to that empathy that were, that were most crucial. Um, one was um, 
in transparency and allowing the employees to see exactly how we made money and how much money we made. So every month, I brought them all together in one room and shared the financials with them so they would understand exactly how much money we brought in and um, all of our expenses and then how much money we took to the bottom line. Um, we also published our um, leadership meeting minutes. So if they were complaining to me about a piece of equipment, they could read the minutes from our meeting and know that we talked about that and that we had solutions, that, that we listened to them. And uh, the other crucial thing we did was create an environment for informal and formal listening to the employees. And the best way I did that was through a program I called Lunch with Lucy, where on Wednesdays, I wasn't Sherry, the CEO. I was just Lucy, a coworker. And any of the employees could sign up to have lunch with me. They chose the restaurant. They chose who else would be at the table with us, whether it was just the two of us or sometimes, you know, seven or ten people that came with us to lunch. And then um, we talked about them. And what, what, did what unique learn? challenges. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, what did you learn in those lunches with Lucy? Uh, in... I learned about their hopes and dreams, uh, about their unique challenges, what their home lives were like, so what they were dealing with even before they came to work every morning. Um, I learned what they thought I was doing wrong <laughs> and right in leading the company. I, um, I learned about their hopes and dreams and was not surprised that none of them dreamed about working for a patient statement printing company. Um, <laughs> But, you know, learn what they did care about so that I could um, help them achieve their dreams and, you know, be a more empathic leader. Mm. So one of the things that you talked about is, you know, being able to share with your clients that my employees are actually the most important. And by focusing on them, they're, they're going to do the best for you. What are some of the ways that, uh, that you were able to really create this workplace culture where employees came first? I think absolutely the most impactful way we did that was by sharing the profits with them. Um, a lot of companies have profit share programs, but we had one so unique that I've never heard of anyone else doing it. Until now, we're, uh, several people here in Nashville are trying it, Amazing. where every month we took 10% um, of the bottom line monthly and split that 10% evenly among all the employees so that the CFO and the programmer and the custodian all got exactly the same dollar amount. Wow. And it showed them that their work was just as important as the work of anyone else in, in delivering a quality product for our clients. Um, and it also changed behavior. It made them act more like owners. Uh, it really it really gave them what I was attempting to do from the beginning, which was give them a vested interest in the outcome. It, it worked. It was uh, magical. And then we um, uh, paid for 100% of our employees' medical, dental, disability, and life insurance. Um, we let them bring their children and their pets to work whenever they needed to. Uh, for a lot of you know, parents, that was uh, snow days, um, 
and instead of staying home with their kids, if we needed them at work, and we said, bring them all, and they would just uh, come and hang out in my office usually, um, <laughs> since I was the least important person in the whole cycle. And then um, we uh, helped them buy uh, their first homes with a gift toward the down payment of their homes. Um, we had a few people who were entrepreneurs at heart, and so we um, invested in their businesses and helped them grow their businesses. Um, and, and there were lots of other benefits, but most of it was aimed toward making them feel cared for and caring for them so that um, so they could focus on taking care of the customer. It's really and truly inspirational to hear that. Um, so much of the time in business, we, we, we just don't hear those stories. We just don't hear um, this, what I would probably call radical empathy. Um, and, and yet, what did that do to your bottom line? How, how did that affect your ability to grow your business? Um, I think it was tremendously impactful because um, we were in a very low low margin business, uh, very commoditized business, and yet uh, we were able to be the price leaders. We were the most expensive in the nation, and yet we grew enough to be on the Inc. 5000 list for 10 consecutive years. Amazing. And we were able to grow being the most expensive in the industry because we delivered such a high quality service and products, and we were able to do that because of the people. So I think it had a significant impact on the bottom line. One of the things that I find so interesting in your story, Sherry, is all of the ways that you've done business differently. What do you think was some of those factors in your decisions to do things differently than maybe was the industry standard? I think my own experience, I think that um, I think I was a model employee. I gave of myself 100%. And I wasn't one of those employees that clocked in and clocked out and did my job only. I remember from my previous em employer on, um, on the weekends, I went and cleaned up the yard. Um, I cleaned the bathrooms. When they needed somebody to lay tile in the IT department, I did it on my hands and knees laying tile and grouting tile. And... Uh, I gave it 100%. I took work home every night, and yet I wasn't appreciated. And I thought, um, how much more involved and engaged the other employ the employees would be if I just showed them I cared, and if I g genuinely did care. It wasn't an act. Yeah. So I think that really informed the kind of leader that I became. I believe it must have also informed the kind of staff and employees that you attracted. I think it did. You know, um, Nashville is a really tight job market. We're one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. And uh, we never had trouble attracting people because everybody talked about what a great thing it was to work at LetterLogic. So their friends wanted to work there and their relatives wanted to work there. Uh, and yet our culture created a really interesting situation for us. There was one situation where I was... Uh, interviewing a potential uh, employee 
and he told me that he was best friends with someone who worked out in the in our plant and so I, I after we were through the interview I went and told his friend I just interviewed so and so and he said don't hire him he's terrible and I said well he said that he's really good friends with you and he said yes we're good friends but he's terrible he won't show up on time and so don't hire him and it made the people uh, it made us attract the very best the cream of the crop because you didn't want somebody getting the very same dollar amount in the profit share that you knew you know, would not pull their weight. So uh, it helped us attract the best and the brightest and, and created great loyalty and longevity with our, with our team members. Mm, amazing. And in terms of just at that, so you did this profit sharing and what did that look like? Did you start doing that from the very beginning or after you achieved a certain amount of revenues? No, we, we did it right from the very beginning, although it took us a couple of years to get to profitability. Mm-hmm. And the the, um, the profit share checks, I think the one, the first one was the first legitimate one. Actually, for a while, I was giving out profit share checks, and we weren't profitable. But I had, had, a, had a not so very good person running the finance department, and, uh, and we didn't know. But the, the checks grew, uh, and they grew to... Um, you know, the last one that I signed was over a thousand dollars, and um, they were real. It's interesting that the employees, when the checks were seventeen dollars, and then when the check is seven hundred dollars, the level of celebration was the same. It was less about the dollar amount and more about being appreciated for their contributions and recognizing that their contributions were just as important as anyone else's. Such a powerful, powerful message. And the idea that the custodian is receiving the same profit share as the management team and the CEO and the people all on on every pay scale in between is truly extraordinary. I want to continue this conversation, um, but Sherry, I'm just going to take us to break and we'll be back in a few minutes with Sherry Deutschman. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach-Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach-Lewis. To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to sarah at srl.solutions. 
Again, that's Sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. Welcome back to Breakthrough. It's Sarah Roach-Lewis, and I'm here with Sherry Deutschman. And we were just talking um, a little bit before the break about the ways in which she uh, inspired uh, incredible growth in her business by supporting her employees above everything else. Um, Just to sort of wrap that up, Sherry, were there other ways that you were doing that that it's important for our listeners to hear about? Yeah, I think that the idea of a fair living wage is really important. And about 25% of our employees were in the in IT department and, and uh, were you know high paid jobs. And um, about half of our employees were working in the factory in Tennessee, where our factory was. The um, minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour, and we we could have done that. Um, and at one time, our starting minimum wage was $12 an hour. And I thought we were doing well. And I went to a conference where uh, one of the leaders there talked about his company's way of determining what was a fair living wage. And it blew me away. And so I went back and immediately made change. He said, we look at what happens if the two lowest paid employees in our company start dating and get married on their joint salaries in what neighborhood could they afford to live? Would they ever be able to buy a home? Would they ever be able to save up enough money to have uh, give their kids a better education? Would they ever make enough money to take a real vacation where most of us, many of us take for granted a vacation? But there are so many families in our nation who have never had a real vacation. And so with that in mind, I, I kind of a knee-jerk reaction, I ran back to the office and I talked to our CFO and I said, we've got to raise the minimum wage and I think it's got to be $14 an hour here. And within about two weeks, as I kept doing the math and kept grinding it out, I thought, no, that's not enough. And so we raised it to $16. So... Um, and in Nashville at that time, that was enough for somebody to um, have a, you know, that really was a fair living wage. At this point, just, you know, three years since I sold the company, I don't think that would be a good starting point anymore. It's very expensive to live in Nashville now. You give me goosebumps. Uh, so often we have this weird separation between our humanity and our business. And you have so eloquently explained how we can grow a business and do wonderful things for ourselves and our family and also really contribute to the lives of other people and to the lives and, and to our community. So, you know, it's, it's really quite lovely. Thank when, you. when you talk about, um, I, I, I go back to that, the things that you did differently. You were the most expensive in the nation and um, for, your, for your sector. And you were a market leader, even though you were the most expensive. How did you do that? What did that take for you to, to accomplish that? Uh, you know, it was a little, a little daunting at first, knowing that with all of the benefits we provided for the employees that, you know, we would have to charge more for our services. 
but I started going with our sales team to potential clients and sitting across the table from them and telling them, you know, I want you to know that even though we really want your business, you won't come first to us. You will never come first to me. My employees come first, but this is why that's going to matter to you. And I think at first my sales team was just mortified uh, by my approach with the clients. But in almost every situation, the clients at first were floored and then started nodding. And then they would say, can we come to work for you? And then they chose us. And they chose us because of the culture. And, um, and they told us that. You were the most expensive and still we chose you because we knew that you would be best because of this. And our sales team got to where they could tell that story without me being there and, uh, and attributed um, most of our sales growth uh, to the culture. In fact, um, they said, well, this was a culture sale and this is how I got this account. And it was amazing how that culture resonated with the clients and how it uh, enabled us to be the most expensive and to provide the level of service that we did. So breakthrough listeners, you can be the most expensive, as terrifying that as that is to think about raising your prices or doing things differently. You can be the most expensive and a market leader. So powerful. Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. So at one point, you had a little bit of shiny object syndrome going on. Uh, how did that affect your business, Sherry? Do we have to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> it's the good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the ugly. So uh, we printed and mailed bills, and I was constantly being pressured by customers and by the sales team to uh, enable the patients to get their bills electronically and uh, to receive payment for our clients electronically. And that was always a part of our business, but we had partners that we uh, shared, did revenue share with that provided that service. But I gave in to the pressure of having to build out the technology ourselves to be able to be a tech company instead of a printing and mailing company. And it almost derailed us. We, um, our profits were really, well, really good and then they started to decline. And so every month I was standing up in front of the entire company telling them, um, well, you know, the profit's a little less this month because of this. And so we ballooned. We increased our staff by about uh, 20% very quickly in just a matter of months. And then uh, we didn't even have a place for these people to sit because we were hiring them so quickly to work in, you know, very expensive tech jobs. And so I was having to build out more office space for these people and buy, you know, fancy new perks that they wanted because that group of people wanted a cooler environment. And before I knew it, we were losing money. And two months back to back, I had to stand up in front of my coworkers, my employees, and tell them, I'm sorry, there's no profit share this month because there was no profit. And knowing full well that I was the reason there was no profit, that I was trying to make us something we weren't and trying to be something I wasn't instead of just being proud of um, who we were and what we were. That's the, that's the ugly. That, those are hard conversations. And, and the hard part about accountability when you're, you're not having those stories, those conversations behind closed doors, you're having those in front of your entire staff. Do you think that level of accountability 
helped you make the decision to change and pivot and scale back more quickly? Absolutely. Um, nothing was hidden from them. But having to fess up to, you know, our where we were and that it was my mistake, um, you know, is probably what made me pivot so quickly. And, you know, seeing, understanding that my actions were causing them not to have that extra cash to take home every month. And it wasn't through, you know, no mistake on their own. You know, no, they weren't doing it. I was doing it to them. Right. Fair enough. And so what happened then? So you went, okay, that's not the right decision for us. We need to pull back. Um, and were you able then to sort of turn things around and, and be able to start sharing profits again? Yeah, it happened pretty quickly, but I didn't do it on my own. I hired um, an interim COO to help me figure out what was wrong. And about uh, two weeks in, you know, he said, you know what's wrong. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you're trying to be something you're not. And, and he, he put it more bluntly. He just said, you've spent millions trying to be this tech company. And you can spend millions more and you're never going to achieve it. You're always going to be behind. And so just embrace who you are. That's what got you here. That's why you were successful. Just do this and quit trying to do that. And so I had to go to those new techies that I'd hired and say, you know, you're not going to be laid off. You're not going to be fired, but we're no longer going to be doing that sexy work that you thought we were going to be doing. Instead, you'll be doing account management type work. And so they just, they fled. <laughs> and we right-sized back to, you know, the, to doing, to the size that we should have been and doing what we should have been doing. And we quadrupled EBITDA in 18 months. Wow. Which was pretty miraculous, which, you know, his mantra, um, this man's name is Brad Stevens, and he was one of the best things that happened to us. And his mantra was major in the majors. So spend your time on the things that, um, that, that affect the company most. And uh, he was just a brilliant teacher. And we, I learned a lot from him. We all did. We soaked it up. That's amazing. Um, just, just as a point of clarification, can you, describe, uh, can you define EBITDA for our listeners? It's earnings before uh, interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Very good. Thank you. Um, and mostly I asked you to do that because I couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, um, you sold your company in 2016. You got this, you, you know, you, you have this beautifully profitable company. Um, you went off on a bit of a wrong direction right at that. What inspired you in 2016 to, to sell? I think it was that hockey stick uh, change in the EBITDA was one because it was the textbook uh, example of when to sell a company when your bottom line is as a percentage without growing the top line, really for the first time in our history. And we had always had a lot of interest in our company and we had had a lot of unsolicited offers to buy the company, but it looked on paper like it was the, the prime time to sell and to get the highest multiple or the highest value for our business. And that coincided with uh, the fact that my teenage daughter, a granddaughter, excuse me, my teenage granddaughter, 13, was coming to live with us. And I figured that I should be a little more available to her as she went through her, her teenage years. As someone who's got a 12-year-old boy and a 15-year-old boy, I it is extraordinary that all those times when I was, when my kids were little and 
parents of, and grandparents of teenagers would say, these are the easy times. And you think, no, they're not. And then you get to the teenagers, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, actually, those were lovely times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> so, so when you sold your company, um, how are there things that you wish that you did differently? Um, how did you celebrate? Let, let's talk first about how did you celebrate that success? Um, you profit shared all along with um, with your employees. Were you did you choose to do something like that with the sale as well? I did. Uh, on I, I told them on a Monday that I had sold the company. And the following Monday was my last day with them. And um, that last week that I was with them, I was able, I'm going to cry, I was able to call each of them in, um, you know, one by one and say, if I gave you $10,000 today, what would you do with it? And then they would say, well, I would buy a boat or, and so then I would hand them a check uh, and in most cases, it was, it was way more than $10,000. So I was able to give 15% of the selling price um, to the employees. And this time, it wasn't uh, distributed evenly. It was tenure-based. So people that had been with me from the get-go, you know, got a lot more. But, you know, one of the most heartfelt, uh, the most astonishing experiences from all that was um, a young woman who had just been with us a couple of years, um, I gave her a, the gift, and a few weeks afterwards, she called and invited me to lunch. And at lunch, told me that she had paid off her parents' home with her gift. Um, I think a 25 or 26-year-old woman whose parents were Serbian refugees, and she had overheard them talking about how um, that whenever their house was paid off, they needed to start helping more of the relatives in Serbia. Um, and so she just went to them and said, I'm paying off the house. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. And she said, well, that is what I'm going to do. It's my contribution to our family. Isn't that remarkable? Oh, and it makes me cheer. That, that is remarkable. Was, yeah, I, I just loved her. And, I, and she said that it was because of the, the culture that we had at work, that it, it, before she came to work at Letter Logic, it would not have occurred to her to do something like that. But because of the, the culture of empathy and caring and love that we had, nurtured um, that she was really happy to give her parents that gift. It was one of the most satisfying things that happened in my entire career. Yes, I can imagine. It also speaks to, as employers and as businesses, those ripples that happen as a result of our business we have no idea how far those ripple out and how wonderful that you were able to find all of these positive ways to make all of these really beautiful positive ripples. I, I, that must have been a super fun week at work. It was. I felt like Oprah for a week. <laughs> <laughs> and you get a gift and you get a gift and you, you get a gift. Yes, yes, it, was, it felt like that. And so how did you... So part of the way that you celebrated, you know, selling this company is by giving away uh, 15%. Um, what are some ways, uh, was there anything that you did personally to celebrate this success or other wins that you've had um, in, your, in your journey? I've always been uh, debt averse, probably to my detriment. Um, and so when I sold the company, we had no debt and hadn't had debt for years. Um, 
And so the first thing that I did when I sold the company was I had rental property and, um, and you know, had invested in a lot of properties around town. And I just went and paid off all the mortgages on everything. So that's how I celebrated, getting totally debt-free on everything. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's a fun day, too. It's a good feeling. Yeah. So when you think about... Um, you know, going back to those early years in your business, are there things that you wish you knew then when you started out that you know now? Um, how long do we have? <laughs> we have two I minutes before the break. <laughs> I think that uh, I wish that I'd had uh, more confidence in my own leadership abilities one of one mistake that I made through the years, which I didn't make once, I made it several times, was doubting my own ability to lead the company because of my lack of education. And um, I would hire people in, in uh, at a really high level with really big salaries and say, here, you run this company. It's gotten too big for me. And each time they did damage to the company. And it took me a while before I realized that Education or no education, nobody was better equipped to run that company than I was. And I see it being, you know, a common thread with women entrepreneurs that, you know, we, we don't have the confidence we should have. So I, w I wish that I had known then, you know, that, that I was pretty damn good at this. Pretty darn smart. A smart cookie, we say here. Thank you. Uh, uh, one of my clients said I have uncommon common sense, and I like that. So I'll I'll live up to I'll 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 take that title. Uh, uh, that's a great title. Uh, listen, Sherry, we're going to go to break, and uh, we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business to the next level? Check out SRL Solutions for more information on training, coaching, and lots of resources for building your business sustainably and profitably. As a partner who helps you strategize and plan, Sarah Roach Lewis helps you turn your vision into reality. She helps you identify the right area of focus at the right time. Visit srl.solutions to find out more and for a free consultation. That's srl.solutions. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Breakthrough with Sarah Roach Lewis. To reach Sarah or her guest on today's program, please send an email to sarah at srl.solutions. Again, that's sarah at srl.solutions. Now, back to this week's episode of Breakthrough. 
Welcome back to Breakthrough. I'm here with Sherry Deutschman, uh, and uh, we're just having a delightful conversation if you're just joining us right now. Sherry, as I mentioned in the intro, was named Champion of Change by President Obama in, uh, in 2016, a White House Champion of Change. That is quite a powerful line to put on your bio. How did that come about? There was an article in the New York Times about our company culture that uh, I think came to the attention first of Tom Perez, who is then the uh, U.S. Secretary of Labor. And he came to LetterLogic and spent half a day with us um, because he just wanted to witness our culture for itself and to talk with me about my stance on increasing the minimum wage. I've been a, a vocal proponent for um, increasing the minimum wage in the United States. And so he had me assemble a group of like-minded business owners in Nashville and we sat there and and talked about fair minimum wage for a couple of hours. And so he must have talked to President Obama about me and about us. And then here I was named a White House Champion of Change, one of the greatest honors of my life. I can imagine. So how did you find out about that? Did you get a letter? Did someone text you, call you? What did that look like? I think it was a phone call originally. And then um, I wish I remembered all the details. I don't, Sarah, but uh, I know I know this. I was invited to the White House to receive the honor from uh, the president, and I was not able to go because I had other business meetings scheduled, which I should have canceled, but I didn't. And uh, so instead, I have a beautiful letter from him framed in my office and uh, very nicely framed and matted. I'll tre- treasure it forever. That is amazing. Um, so t- let's talk a little bit about your new business, Brain Trust. Uh, what inspired? Tell us a little bit about what it is and what inspired that. It is a peer-to-peer membership organization to help women grow their businesses to a million and beyond. And it was born out of my realization in, um, uh, uh, after Obama named me White House Champion of Change, I was named um, a member of the National Women's Business Council, which was a group of 14 women to advise the president and Congress on issues related to women in business. And, um, you know, one of the biggest problems that women have is access to capital. So, like, of the $80 billion that was invested in um, by private equity and venture capital in the U.S. last year, only 2% went to women, mm. which is astonishing. And and the statistics uh, for how we grow our businesses um, is kind of testament to that. Um, only less than 2% of women-owned businesses ever get to a million in revenue. And yet I think that a million in revenue is really pivotal because at that point, you're probably paying yourself a decent salary you're beginning to build some personal wealth and change your family's lives. At that point, you have several employees probably where um, you can start uh, attracting investment dollars or get a, a line of credit. There's so many good things that can happen at that pivotal $1 million mark. And yet so so few of us achieve that. So I thought about that at the time when I was a member of two organizations, WPO, which is the Women's President's Organization, and EO, which is the Entrepreneur's Organization. 
both which are global companies, uh, nonprofits that help through this peer-to-peer learning help you get from one million and to billion. And the problem is, in both those organizations, you must have a million in revenue and you must own 50% of your business. Well, that knocks out 11.8 million women in the U.S. from ever having the luxury of learning from other women in that group. So I created Brain Trust for them to help more women get to that pivotal mark so um, they can start building their individual wealth and their influence in the community and their ability to help other women. That is so inspiring. And we do share that same vision of, you know, helping to hit that million dollar milestone and beyond. And I think, you know, one of the other really interesting stats is that, um, you know, so few, I think it's less than 10% of uh, women owned businesses have, have, employees at all and you know exactly 83 percent 86 percent have revenues less than a hundred thousand so you know when you're hanging out in that space um that's that's the hardest space and it's funny because we you know when you're not at seven figures and beyond you think that's really hard but actually that first stage is is so difficult because you're doing it all yourself with you know, no time, no money, and, and, and to your point, no support or, or expertise to help you figure out how to grow to that next level. And in that phase, too, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so the beauty of being in, um, we put the women in groups we call vaults, uh, connoting uh, a place of safety mm-hmm. and also a place of great value. So we put each woman in a group of, of uh, six other women uh, to get together once a month for three or four hours just to work through their business issues and through experience sharing, help each other over those hurdles and to teach you what you don't know that you don't know. Yeah, the, yeah, the, it's so powerful. So um, right now, Brain Trust is just, is it um, nationwide? Is it in Nashville? What are your plans for, what's the bold vision for Brain Trust? I have grand plans for Brain Trust. So we uh, we have four groups now in Nashville, and we have a waiting list. And our plan is to perfect the model through September. And then in January of 2021, we're going to launch nationwide. And then after, yes, we'll be coming to a city near you. <laughs> and, uh, and then probably 48 months, uh, no, excuse me, 24 months after that, we'll go global in a few select spots. Well, I hope Canada is one of them. Absolutely will be. <laughs> put, put a pitch in for Canada. So, you know, when you think about that and it, it's, what experiences did you have in business and as someone who had a successful exit that you hope women have as they're growing? And what are some of those ones where you're like, oh, this is why we're doing this. So you don't actually have to go through what I experienced. There, there was a time um, where I was on too many boards and in too many groups and felt it to be more of a burden than anything else. So I dropped out of everything and thought, well, I'll add back in things that I know will provide value. And it was during that time where I had um, a really significant problem at Letter Logic that 
and I was in a panic and didn't know what to do with it. And I mentioned to someone who was in EO, I wish I had my group back because um, if I had my EO group right now, I know they could help me through this. And he said, let me call my group. And so he sent an email out to his people in his group and said, can you come to Sherry's house? And in half an hour, they were all at my house. All these people dropped what they were doing and came to my house and said, tell us the problem, which is how this peer-to-peer membership works. You share your problem. They ask clarifying questions. And then one by one, they share their experience related to a similar problem so you can help know your um, the action to take. And that happened with them. And they, they, they rescued me and helped me know exactly the right thing to do. And I said at that point, wow, I have to rejoin EO, which I did immediately. And, and then thought I'll, I'll never be without this group again, these people that I can uh, go to with any kind of business problem. And I wanted to afford, you know, these women who are not yet, that don't yet qualify for EO and WPO to have that same luxury of having a place to go with their challenges. Yeah, yeah it, it is so important. Um, when I started my business, I uh, took a, a, a coaching program and part of that was an accountability group. And that has been I'm long past out of that uh, out of that training, and that group stayed together quite cohesively. We met once a month for probably another 18 months um, after the official training wrapped up because it was so powerful and so important to all of us uh, to have those learnings. I do think what we can learn from groups, in particular. When I did that, because I was starting out, and I, I, I call my first year in business a, a crisis of confidence because I just didn't had no idea what I was doing. Um, and even though they were talking about things that I that were so beyond where I was at, I learned so much from their experience, and I was always able to share something that was helpful because none of us come to these things as a blank slate. And you know that past experience in whatever way was so incredibly helpful. So when you're when you were thinking about developing this, you chose to 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 create brain trust for women entrepreneurs. Do you see what are some of the differences that you see or the uh, that between women entrepreneurs and and their male counterparts? Uh, I think in general we are more debt averse and we we don't ask for help. We don't ask for the sale. We don't ask for the money. When we do raise money, we don't ask for enough money. And so I'm I'm hoping that one of the outcomes of these women working together is they'll build each other's confidence up enough so they start asking and being bold about their asks and being bold about you know their plans for growing their businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the interesting thing, too, is 
what I love that you're doing is, is creating those environments for women to build themselves, to, to support each other. I always say that I've done all kinds of work um, with uh, women and leadership. And I often say that really the only thing that we need to do as organizers is create a self and welcoming, a safe and welcoming space. And women create the magic. The magic happens in the room because of, of the space. I think so. I think, you know, we're, we're much better at EQ and, you know, empathy uh, than, than men and many, and many uh, you know, most often. Um, and so we, we need to own that and how valuable that EQ is and how valuable empathy is too. And I think that, again, is one of those, you know, one of those things that you so clearly exemplify in your own business journey is that value of empathy and something that often is framed for women in business as a negative. You're too emotional. You turned that completely on its head and created a successful company and showed that boss of yours um, by, by taking those things that are, are perhaps more negatively perceived traits as women and, and, and built a business around that. Absolutely. So as, um, as you're, I'm sure you're asked this question all of the time, but I'd love to know what is that piece of advice that you have for women who want to hit the seven-figure mark in their business? I think to make sure they've got, you know, a solid business plan. I believe that one of the reasons women don't get uh, investment dollars at the same level as men do is because we aren't often um, thinking big enough and our ventures aren't really investable. And making them understand that there has to be a return on the investment for the investor. And if people aren't investing, that's why. Because I don't think they're going to care if you're male or female um, if if you have a really great investable idea. They're, somebody will invest in you. So I would you know hope that women would start thinking about this from that standpoint. What would the, the ROI be for an investor? And if I'm not ever going to get investment dollars, is this really a sound business plan? Is the model sound? Can I really make money at this or is it a hobby? Fair enough, right? Fair enough. Is this a hobby? And so I think, you know, one of the things around that is women tend to have businesses that are in that service-based um, sector. And so I think in that, how do we support women to do the kinds of businesses that they want in that, say, service-based area? and think bigger at the same time and think about how can we create something that is investable and doing what, you know, what you're an expert at. I think just through the peer-to-peer -peer network of, of learning what's possible with your business. And it doesn't have to necessarily mean getting to a million dollars or to being uh, even scalable or, or investable. But what happens to a woman if her business is, annual receipts are 88 grand. What happens if she takes it to 250,000? What might that do for her personal income? And then if she can get there, uh, it probably at that point, you know, making a good living and being able to put some money aside changes everything for her. 
And then for those women who are currently at 250, maybe they don't have an investable idea, but there are subtle things that they can do to that business to t get that business from 250 to 500, which can change the whole uh, financial trajectory of her family. So um, just changing a mindset. And on that mindset piece, you've talked a lot about confidence. How do women shift that confidence? How do women change their mindset from I'm not enough to heck yeah, I can do this? I think the number one key to confidence is knowledge. And so um, the more knowledge you have about your industry and about the pitfalls of your industry and those who have gone before you in your industry, the better equipped you are to have confidence. And so I would just encourage women to know your stuff, get, get the knowledge wherever, wherever you can get it, get the knowledge of your industry and of business in general. I think often we don't know our numbers well enough. I certainly didn't in the beginning and, uh, and pay close attention to the numbers. Well, Sherry, you have provided a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of expertise here on this call. And I do want to just say, a, you know, a heartfelt thank you for your time and your experience and really for, for doing what people felt probably wasn't, um, wasn't possible. So thank you for that. Thank you. I'd love to encourage your, your listeners, if they want to know more about the story, to, uh, to get my book, Lunch with Lucy, um, and they can hear the entire story. Wonderful. And it is available on Amazon for pre-order right now and will be released yes. um, in March 2020. March 10th. Uh-huh. March 10th. Perfect. Well, yeah. I, for one, will be uh, buying that. And uh, in the meantime, <laughs> I do want to just say thank you so much for your time. I want to say to all of you listening, thank you for, for your time. It's been a pleasure. As I wrap up, I want to encourage you to check out um, my website where I'm actually uh, delivering some training later on this month um, that will teach you how to double your revenues in 2020. In the meantime, um, I do want to say thank you. Please subscribe where you get podcasts. My name is Sarah Roach-Lewis and this is Breakthrough. Thank you for tuning in to Breakthrough. Be sure to join Sarah Roach Lewis again with another inspiring interview next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.